Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass effect, lyrical oxidation, you're irrelevant, mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you earn, trans uranium, if y'all was uranium, molecules, spontaneous combustion, Bam. law of definite proportion, gain, ink weight, I'm every element around. Welcome to Spark Science, this is Regina Barber DeGraff. This episode of Spark Science will be the second of two podcast compilations. These amazing student-made podcasts were created as a final project for a science communication course Dr. Melissa Rice and I taught this last spring. Subjects range from science education, an expose on a local Bellingham business owner and scientist, and one student's journey to become a thin films researcher. Teaching this course for the first time with Mars scientist Dr. Melissa Rice was a complete blast, and I hope you enjoy listening to the students' hard work and enthusiasm. and I'd like to welcome my guest, Hui Nguyen, who's a senior in the physics department at Western Washington University. Hello. We're going to be talking about your journey to become a thin films researcher. So what did you do kind of in your undergrad years, or how did you get to Western? Yeah, so originally I came from South Seattle Community College. I did Running Start, and then I did a couple more years there. So I just kind of got a general education there, Okay. Um, and I actually didn't put much effort into my education at all, and I would say I was a, much of a slacker. So. It's hard to really buckle down if you don't know your direction. Yeah, I actually took a year between community college and Western, okay. so getting back to the groove of actually studying and, and being involved in schoolwork has been really tough, and that, I, that kind of took its toll, especially the first physics courses that I took. Yeah. I really noticed I wasn't on the same level as everybody else. Um, I had to kind of review all this, the material. And then I came to Western and I fell in love with physics. A lot of the passion for physics um, originates essentially from how physics can explain everyday phenomena in a rigorous setting. It's really shaped the way I view the world. I look at leaves falling and I look at drag and all that stuff. And it's brought a little bit of beauty to my life. Being able to explain and understand how things work has always been a great passion of mine. So. Nice. Kind of a bit of a peek behind the curtain. Oh, definitely. So your current position is your researcher working mm -hmm. under um, Dr. Ledger, right? Right. How would you describe your current position on your research team? As of right now, I'm transitioning to passing this project off onto a couple sophomores. And I think it's a good experience for me in terms of being able to teach people these very useful skills, as well as kind of be in a leadership position and directing my own research in a way. I really like the idea of being directly in control of what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the most valuable part of research for me is like, gaining some, some kind of outer knowledge or knowledge that you wouldn't necessarily gain in a coursework. So let's kind of, I guess, take a step back and figure out yeah. what plasmonic enhancement of organic photovoltaics kind <laughs> of like entails. That's, you know, it's a bit of a mouthful. It's, I guess we could start with plasmonic enhancement. What are you enhancing and what are plasmonics? Yeah, so that's kind of like a jumble of words. Yeah, I would yeah. agree. Um, 
what the goal is is to improve the efficiency of these photovoltaic devices or solar cells okay. and what we're enhancing is the photo current that's being generated oh nice um, so the plasmonic part has to do with the method of enhancement we're using something called a plasmonic waveguide and that's fancy mumbo-jumbo for it. it's just it's a thin film structure so it's three layers and these are very very thin films they're like 30 nanometers. Oh, wow, that so, is tiny. So, yeah, when I, when I mean thin, it's really thin. And what we can do with these structures, so it's a thin film of gold, mm-hmm. titanium dioxide and gold, and what that does is allows it, us to um, essentially convert light, the energy stored in light, in a different way. So when light hits this waveguide, mm-hmm. it excites something called a surface plasmon, Polariton, okay. so the nerdiest <laughs> word you ever heard. It's it's a oscillation in the charge density at the surface. Okay. So it's one way that we can use light in a different way and capture the energy. Okay, nice. So it, that ends up like causing a current to flow? It, it's a little bit like we're going to use it as a, a back contact to these photovoltaic okay. cells. So it's kind of a, we're adding it to an existing device architecture. Oh, okay. So it, it's not a, like a standalone kind of thing. Nice, so it's an add-on to make them a little more effective. Yeah, definitely. Nice, that's really cool. Yeah. And so how do um, organic photovoltaics or mm. solar cells, how do they mm. differ from normal solar cells? If you kind of like look around on the rooftops, you see like these giant black panels. Right. And those are mostly made of of silicon. Mm-hmm. What's organic about these photovoltaics are the active layer or where all the magic happens, where all this energy is being converted, is mm-hmm. made of a organic polymer, okay. a conjugated polymer. And the polymer that I'm working with is called MDMO PPV. So it's an acronym. Don't like. Okay. Don't <laughs> ask me what it stands for. What's really cool about this is they're solution processable. So we can mix this polymer up and then we deposit it onto any substrate that we want. For now, we're using glass substrates. Mm-hmm. It's an indium tin oxide substrate, which is like a conductive oxide. But if you were to place it on something like really flexible, mm-hmm. this opens up the possibility for like flexible solar panels, which oh, is wow. really cool. Nice. So, yeah. Um, That's cool. So how did you get started doing your research uh, with under Dr. Ledger? Yeah, so I, I think my research path has been a little, a little unorthodox. Um, I've done research with a variety of professors, or not a variety of professors, but like many professors. Um, and I was still, while I knew I was interested in physics, I kind of didn't know which branch of physics. So I took the opportunity as an undergraduate to kind of explore and kind of reach my tendrils yeah. outwards and discover what I really wanted to do. So first I did research with Dr. Rice doing Martian spectroscopy. Um, cool. And then I started working with Dr. Covey studying stellar evolution. Wow. And then um, kind of led to Dr. Ledger um, where I study what I do now. So, nice, that's really so cool. So it's, it's been a long journey, but I think it's really refined what I want to do and it's kind of helped me decide on doing experimental physics in graduate school. Okay, that's yeah. awesome. That's really cool that there's all these opportunities available here oh, at Western for definitely. some undergrad students to really, I don't know, feel out the field <laughs> and figure out yeah. what they want to do. Yeah. That's cool. My family um, originally came from Vietnam. Um, we moved to America when I was about two years old. Oh, wow. Um, so it was definitely a struggle for them, mm-hmm. especially learning a new language and uprooting their lives yeah. and coming here. But I, I really am appreciative of what my parents have, have done. 
giving me the best opportunity to succeed. For them, I feel like it has been hard, but like for me, I don't really know Vietnamese. I mean, I can understand it, but it was more English for me. Like I, English is essentially my first language. But I think my, my Vietnamese background, my parents definitely emphasized the importance of education. When I was younger, they always be telling me, study, study hard and you'll be successful in life. But I never, I never really took that to heart mm. until when I was kind of like independent from them. I came to Bellingham and I was on my own, nobody to tell me to study constantly. Yeah. And I think that's when I realized for myself that I really got to try hard to, to do all that I can to gain knowledge of yeah. whatever I want. I'd imagine that you have some other stuff going on in your life outside of that. What kind of stuff do you like to do to unwind? Before coming to Western, I was really into martial arts. I've done martial arts called Vobinam. It's it stands for well, it stands for Vietnamese martial arts. It's kind of I did that for about 7 years. It was it was really nice. It was a way for me to gain discipline and understand a little bit more about my Vietnamese culture. Yeah. At the same time it kept me in shape and give me an outlet for expression, essentially. And one thing that I also did in connection to martial arts was something called lion dancing. Lion dancing. So it's, it's a very traditional like Vietnamese-Chinese tradition where mm -hmm. people dress up in lion costumes and there's two people that are in a lion costume. There's one that operates the head, there's uh -huh. like little flaps and eyes, and then there's a person that is the butt. <laughs> and I, I like being the butt, I get to shake my, <laughs> shake my tail around. Shake your baby. Um, but I thought that was really fun because during Chinese New Year's or Vietnamese New Year's, they would have a lot of celebrations where they light firecrackers and then we'd go dance in the firecrackers. Oh and wow. I thought it was a great experience. I met a lot of really cool people there. I actually met my girlfriend. I did this thing called Dance This. Mm -hmm. where it was kind of a culmination of um, different dance groups and that's that's where I met her essentially. She was doing traditional Chinese dance and I was doing line dance. So what's uh, next on the drawing board for you? So I'm excited to say that I will be attending University of Michigan. Um, I'll be trying to get my physics PhD there and actually about seven days after graduation, I'll be flying on over there and I'll be doing research Wow! Um, with one of the professors there. It's going to be something that I'm really interested in doing and I hopefully will gain a good experience and, and have a kickstart on my PhD program there. That's cool. Yeah. Well, congratulations Thank on you that. Very much. That sounds Thank really you awesome. Much. I bet it was a very competitive program to get into. Yeah. Is there anything that you'd like to add that I kind of missed? I'd kind of like to tell Everybody who's struggling in science or in any area of education, that while it might seem like it's really tough right now, all of their hard work is definitely worth it. I've, I've realized like in my experience here at Western, like there are times where you feel like you're working so hard but nothing is paying off. And I just want to say like, it will pay off in the end, I guarantee it. Like, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That's really inspiring. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, you've definitely been a bit of uh, you had an effect on me for yeah. sure because yeah. my sophomore year I didn't pass the first yeah. class and then I was it was the thermodynamics and yeah. and you know I talked to you and you're like this awesome <laughs> successful guy you know you really like made me realize you know it's okay like yeah, yeah. goes to the grindstone now and keep on trucking. It's really important to take your failures. You can realize that you failed, but then take the next step and say. 
what can I do to really n succeed in the yeah. future? You kind of have to look at it in a different way as kind of like a learning experience. And that's the way I view all of my failures, really. I, I look forward towards the next failure. It's a really like, <laughs> wise way of looking at things. That's awesome. Well, Hui, I want to thank you for your time today. I Absolutely. really appreciated it. Yep. Thank you so much for the opportunity to kind of share my story and hopefully inspire others to to try to succeed and do their best in whatever they can. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Definitely an inspiring story. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Yep, absolutely. This podcast is made in partnership with KMRE, Western Washington University, and Spark Science. I'd also like to thank WWU's Department of Physics and Astronomy for letting me use their facilities to record this. Special thanks to Laster for letting me use their music in this podcast. You can find them on SoundCloud, YouTube, and Bandcamp. Jonathan Cornett, and today I have a special show for you guys. I am interviewing Dr. Jean-Luc Cornett, a graduate from Caltech who has opened his own business up. Uh, it's resided in Bellingham, Washington, and it's called Conveyor Dynamic Incorporated. Now, you may have caught the similarity. Today, I'm actually interviewing my dad. We talked about his upbringing, the business he started, and advice for students in the STEM field who might be hoping to actually start something their own after graduating. First, we start off by talking about his unique upbringing. So first, um, so you were born and raised in Africa. Yes. So how did that affect your uh, studies and specifically your outlook on science? I don't think it had a lot of effect on that. It had a lot of impact on my view of the world and, you know, my opening to different way of thinking and different culture. But uh, my love of science was always there. I think it would have been the same no matter where I was born. Where do you think that originates from then? I don't know, I'm a very Cartesian person, very logical. So mm -hmm. I always try to find you know, the reason why things happen one way and not the other way. So even when I was very young, I was playing with, you know, I don't know, Lego and Meccano and toys and building things and trying to understand. I was taking things apart and putting them back together. And it's, I don't know where it came from, but that's just the way it is. So eventually you're going to find yourself at Caltech, but I'm curious more when that road started forming. Um, you were a fairly advanced student, but at what point did that settle as an actual possible reality of moving to the U.S. and going to a grad school like that? Well, you have to remember that was the late 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, uh, back then in France, we still had the draft, which means that uh, when you turn 18, you had to go spend three months in the army. And then when you mm -hmm. were done with whatever, you would be drafted for from one year to two years, depending on what you did. Um, that was not something I especially wanted to do. So when I finished my engineering school in France, you know, I was 21 or 22, I think. Um, one option that uh, came to me, that was offered to me, is to apply for a scholarship to go, you know, study abroad. Mm. And one advantage of doing that is that it pushed, you know, the army out of the way. So it's not like I wanted to be at Caltech, mm. you know, but it was an opportunity. At the same time, I was interested in 
a lot of things at the time, mostly renewable sources of energy. That was a, a big focus in the late 70s after the oil crisis. Mm. So I picked up, you know, to go and study, I mean, the photovoltaic effect and solid state physics. And, uh, and at the time, Caltech was the best place in the United States. So you'd already experienced culture shock when moving from Africa to France. What about the change of pace in life when you went from being at the electric school or electrical engineering school, like, yeah. uh, as opposed to going to Caltech in the United States? What was that shift like? It was actually a pretty difficult shift in terms of the, of the time and the working world, but it was not a difficult personally. Mm -hmm. I still finished second in my class, you know, at uh, Super Lake. Mm -hmm. And then I came to Caltech and suddenly you're just an average student. You know, everybody around you, especially at the graduate level, everybody around you is extremely good mm -hmm. and extremely focused and motivated, which is something I was not really. So the biggest cultural shock for me was, you know, kind of to prove myself, hey, you know, I can do it. Mm. And on top of that, I did a, a school in France, which was information electronic, you know, I mean, like circuit board design, electronic and electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of mass, a huge amount of mass and a lot of physics, you know, in the prep school. So all the basics of physics already knew, mm -hmm. you know, we did quantum mechanics and, and the, the basic. But then suddenly, you know, I found a Nobel Prize giving a lecture on physics at a level that I'd never thought before. So I, I, I really, I would say, fell for it, you know, and, I, and my first year between the the language barrier, I came to um, to California, I hardly spoke any English, I spoke high school English, mm -hmm. you know, and the level of the people around me and the fact that I was completely changing subject, you know, I was studying, uh, I mean, uh, um, energy in general, nuclear, I mean, physics, uh, I mean, uh, solid state physics, photovoltaic, sure. a lot of things which I had never really done before. Mm -hmm. So what I did was working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, for a year. <laughs> Yeah. But I didn't mind it because it was my own choice. Mm -hmm. It was not like I was just going to school because that's the thing you do. I, I came to California to, to learn something and, and I did, you know. So that's cool. So it sounds like you found your passion while you were there too. I did. Uh, uh, even so, it was very frustrating later because my patient at the time again, I was late 70s, you know, Jimmy Carter was president of the mm -hmm. US. There was a lot of Research done on renewable source of energy, I mean, photovoltaic being one of them, wind energy, geothermal, mm -hmm. passive design, you know, even planning and housing, all these keywords which are coming up again today, you know, were really the thing to do back then. So I, I did my master in applied physics, and then I, I had to find something connected to energy, you know, and, and I was offered to stay for a PhD. So. I did a PhD in fluid dynamics, looking at, you know, calculating, trying to find an analytic solution to the problem of calculating lift and drag of an airfoil moving through its own wake, mm -hmm. which is a problem you get in helicopter, but also in, uh, in windmill. Mm -hmm. So my main focus was really energy. You know, I worked on designing, testing, and, and making solar cells for the space program, and then there was... And then Reagan got elected. Yeah, changed everything. <laughs> and he killed all of that. You mm -hmm. know, overnight, he killed the Department of Energy, which was founding, you know, most of our research. He killed all the tax advantage for anybody doing anything 
you know, at the industrial level, especially at, on wind energy. If you go to California today, you'll, you'll still see a lot of windmill farm. Mm -hmm. These were all built in the late 70s, you know, and maybe early 80s sure. because of subsidies and tax break given to companies doing it by, by the federal government. All of that stopped overnight when mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan was elected. And the next 30 years, people were burning fuel. Yeah. So that's why I never ended up working in that field, you know, later in, in my, you know, professional life, sure. simply because there was there was no place you could actually do that. Even fundamental research on it was extremely limited. Mm -hmm. So you didn't end up pursuing a job specifically in the whole clean energy world because of these outside influences you couldn't really control. But you did end up starting a business right outside of school, uh, maybe one you didn't expect yourself to be in. So can you tell me a little bit about Conveyor Dynamics Incorporated, the company you started? Parson, they were designing a number of material landing, large material landing system all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, and when they built them, you know, pretty much every one of them self-destructed. Oh, You're thinking wow. of major issues uh, where, you know, Conveyor system historically were less than 500 meter long, mm -hmm. you know, and they were used inside plants to move things from. And then suddenly people started thinking, well, it costs less, you know, to move whatever, long distances, anything, sure. you know, over distance yeah. than it would be strokes or train. Mm -hmm. So people started to make them bigger, and suddenly all kind of problems that did not happen before happened. So he came to Caltech to actually talk to my advisor at the time, say we were looking for somebody to do some consulting work for him. Okay. And uh, well, I was just, you know, I was looking for, you know, some money. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and my my advisor had better things to do. So, you know, we worked together with him a little bit at the beginning and then it pretty much gave me the project. And the project was to do computational physics, to actually take a real world piece of equipment, which is quite complicated, and find a way to simulate it so we can predict, you know, mm -hmm. what's going to happen to it when you're actually operating it. Okay. So I did that for three years and I wrote the first program, you know, we call it Bell Flakes, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then when I was getting ready to, well, actually finishing my PhD, uh, Larry came to me and said, well, you want to start a business together. Wow. So I had the analytical knowledge, sure. the understanding, but I also have a very good engineering mind about you know, understanding the difference between what you can and cannot do. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Larry didn't have any of that, but he had the world experience. You know, sure. he knew the problem that they were facing in the field. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't know how to fix them, but he, he believed I could. So it sounds like you didn't really have much business experience before CDI. Uh, Larry may have been there to help with that side, but how did you find the business experience and growing your own business? How did you learn to run a business correctly? And how those experiences maybe uh, affected where you ended up. Everything at the end of the day ties up, you know, in yeah. almost any field. Makes sense. So same thing applies to starting a business. We started with just two of us. So we run that like a moment for operation. Sure. And as we started hiring people, you just learn. Okay. And I have to say again that uh, doing that in the United States is a lot easier than doing it in Europe. Because Europe has so many issues with regulation, with union, with the way the whole system is structured. Mm -hmm. It's much, much more difficult. Well, in the US, it's relatively easy. To start a business costs $70 and it takes two hours to fill up an application and you're in business. Oh, that's cool. You know? 
So running a business is mostly people's management. You know, you have to surround yourself with people you can trust, you know, that you can delegate to. You have to learn to delegate, which mm-hmm. is not easy. Sure. At the beginning, you know, on, on my side of the business, I was doing everything myself. Then I, other people do it, but I would check everything they did. It's not really micromanage, but when you have a small business, one big mistake, you know, sure. we were small, but we were doing $400 million project, you know. Yeah. It was not our money, you know, we oh, were yeah. just paid as engineer. But if we messed up, we we could mess up big time. Yeah. And all it takes is one big mess up and you're out of the picture. So a lot of it has to do with quality control, making sure that anything you do, especially real-time programming, we did a lot of real-time programming, controlling big machines, million-dollar machine, and, and you write the wrong code and you can break it or you can kill somebody. Mm-hmm. So I was very concerned about, about that side, you know, and you have to learn to delegate to other people and, and only find out, you know, effectively at the end, you don't, you're talking of code, you don't read the code, uh, you just look at the results. So uh, finally, I was wondering, I know a bunch of people who are about to go to grad school, they're finishing their undergrad degree, or some graduates who are about to finish. If you could get a forum where you would talk to all these folks, uh, what would your advice be if they are thinking of maybe trying to go into business right away and not stay in the academia world? If you have any idea, anything, you know, mm-hmm. try to put a business plan together. And I'm not talking of a 20-page of PowerPoint and making it look good. In your head, what do I want to achieve? You know, uh, and try to be really realistic. Try to say, okay, is this something somebody else has done? Is it going to cost me $20 million, which I don't have? You know? sure. And it's something that's realistic in terms of your capabilities, the founding, you know, and the time. But if you have something like this and you have a grasp on it, go for it. Well, there you have it, folks. Advice I gotta adhere to. But seriously, I hope you guys learned something from this. I know I did, and I wish you guys the best. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Spark Science. I'm your guest host, Andrew Hood, and I am an undergraduate student at Western Washington University, studying to become a high school chemistry and physics teacher. I remember back in high school struggling with the basic physics principles and learning it for the first time. I was not alone. The person I'm joined with today has a career in bettering the physics education in the calculus-based physics environment. With that, I would like to introduce Dr. Andrew Pedro from Western Washington University. Hi, Andrew. Great to be with you. So the first question, what does your position entail at Western? So I am a professor in the Department of Physics and in the Science, Math, and Technology Education program. And the Physics Department, of course, prepares and educates students studying various different STEM fields, including our physics majors, but also students majoring in chemistry or engineering or geology and so forth. And then I teach a variety of upper division physics courses for our physics majors. My uh, other half of my job is with the SMATE program, 
And the mission of SMATE is to prepare students to become K-12 teachers of science. And so I teach specially designed physics courses for people who want to become teachers themselves. So that's my teaching. And then my research area is on the learning and teaching of physics. So I study how students understand and think about specific physics concepts, where are uh, tricky parts, uh, where do students tend to get stuck, what common misconceptions there might be, and then try to use that information to design approaches to instruction that can help support learning and help students to deeper understandings of these concepts and, and ways of thinking. And so what led you to pursue this field of research? Well, I started out in graduate school in the Department of Physics at the University of Washington, intending to focus on a traditional area of physics research. As all graduate students at the University of Washington do, I served as a teaching assistant in uh, small group sections of the introductory course, and there we used a curriculum called Tutorials in Introductory Physics that's authored by Lillian McDermott and her colleagues at the University of Washington. I was really engaged and interested in this curriculum and the way it engaged students in deeper level sense-making about the physics rather than just sort of memorizing formulas and crunching formulas as I had learned when I took introductory physics. These students were pushed to explain where the formulas come from, why they are the way they are, how do we know what we know. And physics is definitely one of those fields where it's not memorization. And that was one thing that hit me hard, too. And then when I heard about you doing your research in bettering the education of students, I knew it was the right path for me. Dr. Petro's current research is titled Examining the Development of Student Reasoning Skills Through Scaffold Physics Instruction. So, Dr. Petro, what is the main goal of this research? So... Over the last 30 years or so, um, physicists have engaged in this kind of research, um, studying student learning, student conceptions, and misconceptions in an effort to try to improve instruction and better support student learning. And one thing that has been found is that there are a variety of what I might call alternative conceptions that are held. And these can uh, linger even after instruction, but through this kind of research, Different approaches to instruction have been devised. However, despite some of the successes in this area, what remains to be very difficult is for students to be able to apply their conceptual understanding to construct multi-step arguments or chains of reasoning um, to explain a real-world phenomena or to make a prediction about a, a proposed experiment. Uh, this multi-step reasoning seems to be something that is really quite difficult and colleagues and I who had been involved in some of the research on understanding student uh, misconceptions or student difficulties with sort of single concept areas of physics became interested in, well, why aren't our students able to take their conceptual understanding and apply it to construct these multi-step reasoning chains? And, you know, it's no surprise that that's difficult, but we became interested in, well, exactly why is it difficult? Where do things break down for students and what can we do to help them? So if I'm correct in this, the goal of this research is to help students create this coherent reasoning chain to go from step A through step B, C, D, all the way to the end goal. Exactly. Um, you know, in physics, there's a high value placed on being able to construct an argument or a chain of reasoning starting from first principles and work going all the way through to a specific prediction 
or a specific explanation of why a system is behaving in a specific way. What we found is that students, in many cases, are able to demonstrate understanding of individual concepts, but chaining together multiple concepts to form this type of, um, of reasoning uh, pathway somehow is difficult. Even when they understand the individual steps, chaining together these steps into a, a coherent reasoning pathway remains very challenging. And so there's, there's some kind of step in learning between understanding the individual pieces and putting together the entire chain that we're trying to better understand and, and support in, in our physics courses. Dual process theory states that there are two systems that our brains think with. System one is an intuitive, automatic, unconscious process, while system two is an analytic, step-by-step -step process. So Dr. Boudreau, how is dual process theory playing a role in this physics education research? Mm. My colleagues and I have been interested in the results uh, and ideas from cognitive science research and psychology research for uh, quite some time. And recently there was a book by Daniel Kahneman, um, Thinking Fast and Slow, that uh, provided very compelling and clear explanations of a particular set of theories that have come out of cognitive science over the last two or three decades that are referred to as dual process theories. And these theories, as you mentioned, uh, suggest that we have these two largely separate uh, thinking processes. I think physicists and, and in physics instruction, we expect that students will activate this step-by-step -step thinking process, um, this more rational um, process when they're posed with a physics problem. But what we were wondering was whether, in fact, students are often answering with system one and not system two. Uh, when they're posed with a physics question in a physics course, system one might generate a very quick answer that pops into the student's mind and feels very compelling to the student. And then the student then knows that the professor is waiting to hear some kind of physics-y-like explanation. So then after the fact, the student might construct some kind of uh, explanation, but their, their answer is determined in an instant before the process of, of generating an explanation. So instead of reasoning from basic principles in a reasoning chain forward to the prediction or the explanation, we were wondering if maybe students are generating an answer right away through system one and then after the fact constructing an explanation based on what they think the professor wants to hear. So we were wondering whether this kind of cognitive process could actually explain our empirical observation that students, um, even when they seem to understand the constituent concepts, still struggle with a lot of these reasoning chain um, tasks. So one of the projects involving this research is the adaptation of a new lab for our calculus-based physics classes. What does this project have to do with this dual process theory and helping students make those connections? So in this uh, area of, of physics, we ask students to uh, make a jump from um, free fall in the absence of air resistance, which is what they've initially thought about in introductory physics, to incorporating the air resistance force in explaining um, how objects fall when they're released. And this introduces quite a bit more complexity in explaining free fall motion and introduces the, the concept of terminal speed and uh, we, we find that objects no longer 
all uh, accelerate downward at the same rate of 9.8 meters per second per second, which is what students initially learn when they study, study free fall. So we're upping the ante, so to speak, for students, introducing additional concepts, uh, lengthening the, the typical explanations that students would have to go through to answer questions, and increasing the cognitive demand. And so it's really an, an ideal um, context to uh, look at whether uh, dual process theories can explain some of the difficulties students have because if we can uh, examine, first of all, whether students understand the individual building blocks, um, for example, that the air resistance force depends both on, on the object's speed through the air as well as the object's surface area that it presents to the air, if they can understand that the weight force exerted on an object is proportional to its mass, if they could understand that at constant speed, such as in terminal speed motion, that the forces must be balanced. We, we can measure or, or look at whether students understand each of these individual pieces, and then we can also look at whether students can construct a step-by-step -step reasoning chain to answer uh, questions, uh, for example, like two balls that are the same mass, but one ball is larger than the other, a baseball and a large rubber ball. And I release those two balls together from the top of a tall building, which will have a greater terminal speed and which ball would have a greater strength air resistance force exerted on it when it's reached its terminal speed. That question requires chaining together many steps that draw on different individual concepts, different building blocks. So we now have the ability to, to um, examine how well students are able to do this and if they are not able to, where does the um, process breakdown for them. And in addition, we have found in our, some of our preliminary work that this context of free fall seems to trigger very quick answers. It, so it seems like the system one is uh, triggered quite readily by these types of situations. Students seem to have intuitive ideas that come to mind right away. So all of these considerations have led us to think of it as a, as a good context to study um, how well students are able to construct reasoning chains and whether or not their intuitive thinking process might be intruding on or disrupting their ability to build chains of reasoning with their analytic thinking system. Back in elementary school, we were told, what would fall faster, a feather or a bowling ball? And of course, this is in a demo where it's two feet off the ground, there's not enough time for this to reach terminal velocity, and of course, they reach the ground at the same time. Is this one of the factors that we have seen students acknowledge when doing this experiment? Exactly. Some psychologists have defined intuition as nothing more and nothing less than what is familiar. So the intuitive answers that system one might generate are really the most uh, familiar answer that jumps to mind. So when we ask about air resistance, students have experiences from their, from their life that really sometimes can push them strongly in a certain direction to a certain answer. So the experience you relate is, a, is an ideal example of that where a salient experience early on in life stuck with you and that became an intuitive resource. And then later on, if you're asked about the, say the baseball rubber ball question that I mentioned, that intuitive experience might spring to mind and push you towards a really quick answer which may or may not be consistent with what the answer that we would find if we applied the physics principles and reasoned our way step by step. This research is mainly set towards college calculus-based physics classes, am I correct? That's right. 
what can we do to change this, if any changes need to be done at all, to make this more suitable for high school environment? Well, I, th I think that the, um, the idea of dual systems theory applies equally well to um, human thinkers of any age. And so the impact that uh, the intuitive thinking system can have on classroom instruction, um, especially you know, in science in this case, um, I think is equally relevant in a college classroom or a high school classroom. So this is something that can definitely take into my future classroom as a physics teacher. I, I think the, the ideas around dual systems thinking could be a valuable resource for a teacher of students at any age. So in that case, I would like to thank Dr. Pedro for joining me today. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been great to be with you. And I would like to thank you for listening to Spark Science. This is your guest host, Andrew Hood, with Dr. Andrew Boudreau, in partnership with WWU and KMRE. This is Spark Science, and we'll be back again next week. Listen to us on 102.3 FM in Bellingham or KMRE.org streaming on Sundays at 5 p.m., Thursdays at noon, and Saturdays at 3 p.m. If there's a science idea you're curious about, post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science. This is an all-volunteer-run show, so if you want to help us out, go to Spark Science now and click on Donate. This show is a collaboration between Spark Radio, KMRE, and Western Washington University. Our producer is Regina Barber-DeGraff. The engineer for today's show is Andrew Norton and SciComm students Andrew Hood, Jonathan Cornett, and A.J. Calder. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I rap, you think. Iodine, nitrate, activate. Red uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance with some balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.